in order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Hello and welcome on that cheery note to Cabotcast, episode two with me, Alan Kennedy. This is the University of Bristol's Cabot Institute's podcast. And today, as you might have gathered from that little hint at the start, I'm going to be talking about all things political relating to climate change. How can we address such a such a giant global issue with big, big players like the United States and small island states all involved? in coming to some sort of solution. It seemed like the world had, had made great progress just nearly two years ago when the Paris Agreement was, was reached at COP21. So now, where do we stand? Well, that's uh, all a little bit over my head. I'm a, I'm a physical scientist, so um, I thought I'd have to enlist some help from other members of the Cabot Institute. So today, I've been speaking to Dr. Alex Dietzel from the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies, or SPACE. And as well as that, I've also been speaking to Alice Venn, who is a PhD student at the School of Law at the University of Bristol. And I caught up with them on a nice sunny afternoon outside the Hawthorns. Hi, I'm Alex. As you've said, I'm a lecturer at Spains. I've been at the University of Bristol for two years now. I started as a teaching associate and since August 1st, I'm a lecturer now. So my research focuses on the politics of climate change, which is quite a huge subject. So I take kind of a narrow approach um, called climate justice. And climate justice focuses on issues of fairness, on distributing benefits and burdens, on which human rights might be threatened by climate change, ethical issues like that. And what I do is I take those kinds of ethical questions to try and answer what's going on in terms of the global response to climate change and how well is that going? How much is it protecting future humans? How fair is it? How are countries being included or left out of the process? And which actors are most important in terms of responsibility? So those are the kinds of questions I look at. Hi, I'm Alice. I'm based at the School of Law and I'm a PhD candidate here, but my background is in European and international law and with a particular focus on human rights and climate change. And currently my project is looking at the protection available to climate vulnerable small island developing states in the South Pacific, um, specifically looking at um, human rights approaches, ways to establish accountability for climate change and to provide more protection to people there who are going to be displaced as a result of climate change impacts. And so I was very lucky and I was able to do three months of field work in the South Pacific in Vanuatu and Fiji, uh, talking to policymakers, NGOs um, and, and lawyers practicing there to establish uh, what kind of approach might be most useful in terms of providing climate justice to those states lucky for some for some of us the most exciting thing we get to do is make a podcast in the sun <laughs> outside the hawthorns but yeah that's, that's it's very interesting thank you both for for sharing your research background with me um if i could just ask you both first um on the u.s withdrawal from paris just any thoughts on what impacts that might have on momentum 
So I found the decision very strange um, to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. First of all, because you can't officially withdraw um, for another couple of years, um, which will be the end of Trump's first term. So it's questionable whether it's really going to happen, first of all. The second thing I found strange is that the Paris Agreement, and this is uh, one of the main criticisms, is that it's really based on intern like internally determined contributions. So countries deciding how much they are going to lower emissions by and reporting on those plans um, and hopefully following through on them. So really, although there was a global agreement to hold emissions to 1.5 degrees or to hold temperatures from rising um, to above 1.5 degrees, there was no kind of global plan like in the Kyoto Protocol um, about how much every country has to reduce their emissions. So really, the US could have put together its plan for reducing emissions however it wanted, um, with not that many consequences if it didn't have ambitious enough plans or if it didn't follow through with those plans, because the Paris Agreement doesn't have many um, kind of processes in place for punishing countries. Um, and if they don't meet their goals, they're actually allowed to leave the Paris Agreement whenever they want. So I found it very strange because Trump could have essentially stayed in the Paris Agreement and just made sure that the plans for lowering emissions were, you know, very um, reasonable or smaller than previous administrations had agreed to. There would have been no real consequence for that. Um, in terms of momentum, what I really enjoyed um, watching was the reaction to Trump pulling out. So I especially enjoyed um, the mayor of Pittsburgh after Trump said, I'm here to represent Pittsburgh, not Paris, um, saying, what are you talking about? Pittsburgh is going to comply with Paris. And they held a demonstration to, sh you know, to show their condemnation of Trump's actions. So that was really interesting. Um, and that was not the only state within the United States who had that reaction. So for me, it was great to watch sub-state actors, and in some cases, non-state actors, coming together with even more momentum behind them, um, kind of in response to Trump pulling out. So for me, it's not really a loss of momentum. For me, it's actually a sign of the momentum that's behind the Paris Agreement, even without the Trump administration. Okay, so you, you're suggesting it's, it's essentially like a shift in momentum. You know, it's moved from, from big-scale actors to other people taking responsibility, essentially? Um, I don't think that that has happened just with Trump's withdrawal. I think that's been building for the last decade or so. So people in my field are becoming increasingly interested in non-state actors and sub-state actors and how much they're really contributing to the climate change cause. So for me, it wasn't an overnight shift, um, but kind of a confirmation of something that I had been suspecting and other scholars had been looking at, which is this real growth and momentum of non-state and sub-state actors. And Alice, any thoughts on, uh, on momentum? So I think for me the, the main concern was that at the international level the impact that Trump's withdrawal may have uh, for other big emitting states such as China, India, Brazil who have voluntarily made pledges for the Paris Agreement which in itself is a huge step forward but they had made those pledges on the basis that there was this diplomatic cooperation that the US as the biggest emitter would, would you know, be on board and that the US and China had made a, a deal to that effect. So the, the risk that I saw was that developing countries with big uh, carbon emissions would use that as an excuse to sort of renege on, on those pledges and to backtrack somewhat. Um, and, you know, there's the golden excuse built into the a mechanism um, and the framework itself of this common but differentiated responsibility principle whereby developing countries don't uh, are not bound to make any specific mitigation pledges uh, and so they always have that 
fallback position whereby they don't necessarily have to cooperate. So that was my worry. But quite encouragingly, actually, I think it's, it's actually gone the other way and the withdrawal of the US has, has further encouraged, particularly China, to, to really take the lead uh, in make, standing by those pledges, in cooperating uh, with the EU in a more proactive way. And I think you do see these other actors sort of coming to the fore and trying to fill that void left by the US. So that's really encouraging. I don't know if you've got any comments as well on on the side of the US withdrawal in terms of funding for these developing nations and I guess I mean I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the Paris Agreement but there is ways you know that small island developing states you know would be would be recompensated obviously with the US being such a big financial player and presumably that's something that Donald Trump didn't like about the Paris Agreement I don't think he's fundamentally about destroying the planet uh, he just doesn't he just doesn't really want to give away any money he's just quite tight um, but yeah, do you have any, any comment on that and, and what effect it'll have for, for the support for, say, these small island developing states? Uh, absolutely. I think that's a really important question, is what happens with the financial pledges to the Green Climate Fund, which is the funding mechanism of um, the UNFCCC and the, and the Paris Agreement, which provides adaptation funding to uh, least developed countries, small island developing states. All of the most climate vulnerable states in the world are dependent on this funding to put in place adaptation measures to protect their people. Um, but again, it is completely dependent on voluntary pledges. And so the US reneging on its pledge leaves again a void, which will need to be filled by other actors. The encouraging thing is that the Green Climate Fund accepts um, donations not just from states, but also from the private sector. And they're trying to encourage more participation from the private sector in that respect now. Um, and to make up to uh, the $100 billion a year target, which was the Copenhagen pledge by developed countries. Um, we're still quite a ways short of that. I think last year it was about $10 billion worth that had been pledged. Um, but there is more action in the private sector. Um, and as I say, the EU and states like China um, are taking more action in that respect. So I, I think there is cause for hope. Hmm. Should also add that Obama, um, before he left, made a large contribution to the Green Climate Fund. I think in anticipation of Donald Trump pulling out, so that creates a small buffer um, in the meantime, at least. Um, I'm going to give you a pretty impossible question here. Uh, if you had to rate the Paris Agreement out of ten, so far, so far, just just a number out of ten, you can you can go to decimal points if you would like. Um, thoughts, Alex. Um, so I look historically back at what they first promised, the UNFCCC, and then the Kyoto Protocol, and then Paris, to give them a fair shot, you know, to see how things are moving forward, yeah. rather than rating the Paris Agreement. So I would rate the promises made like an 8 or a 9. They were pretty lofty. Uh, there were some nice things said about future generations and protecting them. I would give the Kyoto Protocol maybe a 3, 3.5 in terms of ambition um, and effectiveness, especially where we saw these countries withdrawing, including Canada, for example, because they couldn't meet even the most kind of basic goals that they'd set in the Kyoto Protocol. So if a Kyoto's 3.5, I would probably give Paris 4.5 or 5. So a small step forward, but I've written a paper about this um, just from one perspective, which is whether it protects the right to health, um, and I found it severely lacking. So I would say it's great that there's continued movement forward, but there's a lot of challenges to overcome, and there's much more work to be done before it's really implemented in 2020. 
Okay. And Alice, out of 10, roughly? <laughs> <laughs> I think I would agree, actually. I would give it a three or a four. I think I was encouraged by the fact that it was concluded. That in itself was, was a, a good step forward. And it is very much um, a first stepping stone to something that is more ambitious, hopefully. But the issue for me, um, as a looking at it through legal goggles, is that it, it's not very enforceable at all. And we've actually t- taken many steps back in terms of enforceability from the Kyoto Protocol, for example. So the Kyoto Protocol had a compliance mechanism built into it. The, the targets themselves were legally binding. And we see with Paris that everything is dependent on this delicate uh, diplomatic will balance um, and voluntary pledges, including climate finance, which for the developing world is becoming more and more crucial. So for me, that's a bit uh, problematic, um, as is the fact that it doesn't provide um, any concrete protection for human rights. There is um, a reference to human rights, a quite tokenistic one in the preamble, saying that human rights should be taken into account in climate action. But that really is just a safeguarding, because there has been controversy in the past with uh, states funding mitigation projects that have actually violated people's human rights, um, indigenous people's rights, etc. You know, there's also the the issue of loss and damage. Paris didn't really go any further than the existing um, regime uh, in providing for uh, the losses and damages that are going to be suffered by the most climate vulnerable states. Um, There's no compensation mechanism, for example. Um, it's, It's, again based on um, voluntary knowledge sharing, technology sharing, Mm. all of these nice um, warm fuzzy words that don't really mean very much uh, and are not very enforceable. So that that would be my my concern with it. Um, But I think it is an important stepping stone and I really do hope and I'm an optimist that there is uh, increasing ambition with this five-yearly stock take. Okay, well, I think it's it's always good to be an optimist in this game, you know, as it'd be a pretty, pretty sad old job. Like, um, I'd like to just say thank you very much, Alex and Alice, both very, uh, very, very interesting to have a chat with you, um, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Thank you very much. This is the Cabot Institute podcast with me, Alan Kennedy. Bye.